0: a blessing it was to hear from Bo and Michelle this morning, a source of joy in and of itself. Welcome to week three of our Advent series, Rediscovering uh, Christmas. And uh, I'd like to start out by telling you a little bit about Yellowstone National Park. Show of hands for how many of you have been there before, a few of you in the audience. Yeah, it's on my bucket list. I, uh, I can't wait to get there. But I've heard wonderful, amazing, beautiful things about this park. It seems like such a unique place. I don't know if you knew that it was the first national park ever established in the whole world, the first one in the whole world. Uh, Its wonder captivated lawmakers, and in 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the act that set aside Yellowstone as a protected uh, treasure. Even if you haven't been there, you have probably seen the photos and sites online. The wildlife is iconic in our American consciousness. The bison, the bears, the wolves, the eagles, the elk, and all sorts of smaller creatures. Uh, There's mountains and hills and, of course, uh, rugged and majestic skyline there, as well as the rivers and waterfalls. But uh, what I want to emphasize this morning with you is the geysers. Uh, If there's one thing that maybe stands out about Yellowstone, it has to be these geysers. There's, There's so much geothermal activity there, it's just amazing. The park basically sits on top of a huge super volcano brewing beneath the Earth's surface, and so all over the park... Uh, this brewing heat works its way to the surface and forces its way up through the earth. Uh, The crazy thing, is, if if you haven't been there, is how many different kinds of geysers there are. There's usually water involved. You can definitely see that at places like Old Faithful that you see on the screen, probably the most famous geyser in the park, maybe the most famous geyser in the world. Old Faithful shoots up and springs water up uh, as well as steam to 180 feet in the air, 180 feet up in the air, and uh, it erupts about 20 times a day. The park rangers can predict when it's going to erupt, and so they'll let you know, but I'm told you got to get there early because it does draw crowds. There are other well-known geysers uh, for different reasons, like this one, the Grand Prismatic geyser. It's the largest, the largest hot spring in the United States. It has this kaleidoscope of colors that's just breathtaking. And then there are the the muddy geysers that they call the mud pots. These are the cauldrons of goo somewhere between uh, liquid and solid. They're kind of like a pot of gravy simmering on the stove. These geysers just kind of burble and burp and boil, releasing bubbles of heat and gas into the air. They come in all different colors, depending upon what predominant minerals they hold inside of them, and they remind you of kind of lava churning beneath the earth. Okay, so why am I talking so much about geysers? The the reason is because I think geysers give us a picture of joy. Similar to geysers, joy bubbles up and overflows and has to find its way out one way or another. Another. Sometimes, and for some people, that's a big bursting eruption like Old Faithful. Other times, uh, joy might be a slow rolling burble. It might even be a little muddy or murky or kind of slow to make its way out. But no matter what is surrounding it or influencing it, true Christian joy does have a source deep within Joy is the gift that we're exploring on the third Sunday of of Advent. The word joy is found everywhere in the Christmas story. Uh, It's found everywhere in the month of December. If you look around, you see it in store windows and at uh, Lowe's and all over people's lawns. After all, we have a joyful faith. Uh, We celebrate good news of great joy. That's why we say Merry Christmas, not Scary Christmas. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that your joy might be full. But the question this morning, I think, is a sobering one when we think about the culture and time in which we now live, and that question is, how can we find joy in the midst of 2020? Um, this Christmas will be difficult for, for many, many people. In fact, I saw a neighbor had their joy sign up, but the joy had fallen over because of the wind, and it just read, oy. And I thought, <laughs> that's probably a better symbolic representation of the year 2020, right there. <laughs> I, not only do we have to deal with the COVID-19 restrictions this year, but many of us are facing tough times economically, and uh, people have lost their jobs, lost businesses, lost homes, and, and most challenging of all, some of us have lost loved ones this year. Uh, for many people, celebrating Christmas this year uh, doesn't even seem appropriate. I mean, how am I supposed to get into the holiday cheer and the, the, you know, the, the colored lights when my world seems so dark and dreary? Uh, In times of pain, lyrics like, oh, by gosh, by golly, seem a little hollow and uh, may even feel like they pour salt in the wounds. But what I want to talk to you about today is that Advent actually brings us good news of great Joy. Now, I'm not talking about a superficial sentimentality. I'm not talking about Pollyanna. I'm not talking about rose-colored glasses. I'm talking about what C.S. Lewis called joy being the serious business of heaven. I'm talking about what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 6.10 when he says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There is a category of joy that can exist even in the deepest possible pain and the most difficult circumstances, and that's our goal to speak about that kind of joy today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, if you will. There's a lot of joy in the biblical Christmas story, but it's important to note that this joy is not separated from pain or disappointment. In fact, much of the joy that we find here in our text today is born out of grief. We're going to explore the stories and experiences of two women this morning, Elizabeth and Mary. And we're going to see three very important points in our message today. First, we're going to talk about what is joy. Then we're going to talk about what is it that steals our joy. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about how can we return to joy in the year 2020. What is joy, what steals our joy, and how can we return to joy even in 2020? Today is Advent week three, and today we will light the candle of joy together would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the light that shines forth even from this candle. It reminds us of your Son, the light of the world, who came to bring us good news of great joy. As light shines even forth from this candle right now, we pray that his light would shine in our hearts to brighten our way, to lead us to his truth and to help us find a source of everlasting joy that can never be taken away. We ask this and your blessing on our time and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 1, the Christmas story, begins a little earlier than the story of the angels and the shepherds that we looked at last week. If you were here with a prophet named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, take a look with me if you will. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. blamelessly. This short little paragraph would have spoken volumes of information to Luke's original audience. We've got Herod, the local Roman official, keeping the Jews under harsh and oppressive Control. These were difficult times. And here we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, both have priestly lineage. And in a day with a lot of religious and political corruption, these two individuals stand out in a stark contrast. It says that they were described as righteous. Now that doesn't mean that they were perfect. It means they placed their faith in God, who justifies us by our faith. But it also means that they were above reproach in their life, and they lived faithfully. I want to pause right here and just emphasize this, because if we're ever going to find true joy, it does start by pursuing righteousness. For many people, they are not concerned with that. Their primary concern is the pursuit of happiness. In fact, we've made pursuing happiness the primary guide for our morality in our society. We say, okay, do whatever you want, as long as it makes you happy. And if that is the standard for acceptable acceptable behavior, then that is a a philosophy that's called hedonism, which is incompatible with the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. (laughs) If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Ho, ho, ho to the bottle I go to heal my hurt and drown my woe. But here's the question, does that kind of escapism actually lead to lasting and sustaining happiness? No, it is empty. But Christian, Christianity teaches us that true joy actually comes as a byproduct of pursuing something greater than your own joy. See, the Bible does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after happiness. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and if you seek after your own, only your joy alone, then it will tend to elude you. You will never get it. But if you seek after righteousness, then joy will come as a byproduct. Joy comes as the result of living for something greater than your own joy. The great irony is the less I become concerned about my joy, the more joyful I become. Someone wisely said, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. So what is this joy? Well, Kay Warren gives us a helpful definition in her book where she says this, Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of every detail of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything will be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in all things. Now, that kind of joy is very different from happiness. Happiness is dependent on circumstances or happenstance. Good feelings based on happenings. Christian joy is not based on good or easy or pleasant circumstances. It is dependent on God. I'll share more about that later. Back to our text, Luke chapter one. Here's this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are described as righteous. And this is especially important in light of what Luke tells us next. He says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Their circumstances are very difficult, especially in the first century. For Elizabeth, the inability to have children would have been a lifelong source of pain and sorrow and shame. It was a big deal in that culture. The great hopes of the young couple Elizabeth and Zechariah would have been eventually fading over time as the years went by as they tried repeatedly to have a child and not been able to. Which leads us to movement two. What is it that steals your joy? There are some common factors that are transcultural uh, that steal our joy. Just like the Grinch who came and stole Christmas. I want to share with you a few things that steal joy. The first one is shame. This, This young Jewish woman would have questioned herself. The other woman, they probably would have questioned her too, unfairly, casting suspicion or unfounded blame upon her. Perhaps there were pregnancies to spark new hope and miscarriages to dash those hopes with grief and loss. We don't know, but Elizabeth's self-worth probably sank as the years passed and hope dimmed. At some point, she and everyone around her would have declared Elizabeth barren and branded her with that lifelong stigma, shame. Author Brene Brown defines shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or belonging. It's this deep sense of being inferior and unwanted. Now, shame is different from guilt in that guilt is when you know something you've done is bad, but shame is when you think you are bad. I'm sure Elizabeth had to battle shame as a thief of joy. The second thief of joy, I think, that shows up then and now is comparison. I imagine as Elizabeth looked around at her friends as they were getting pregnant and forming their own families, that comparison was something that she would have struggled with. Same thing is true today nothing steals joy like comparison with others. You're scrolling through social media and you say, oh, this person has a boyfriend. Oh, this person got into this school or that college or this person's family vacation looks like a lot of fun. But the life you have, some of you, would be so enjoyable if you would just quit looking around from side to side at what everybody else is doing because that steals your joy. Here you are praying for more joy, but you are engaging in comparison, which is stealing the very thing for which you are praying. Comparison is a thief of joy. A third thing that steals our joy is expectations. C.S. Lewis says joy has everything to do with expectations. I'll just give you an example. If you and I were to head into a room, and I lead you into this room, and before we go in that room, I say, listen, you're about to enter into a honeymoon suite. And we walk in, and it's just okay. It's not that great. It's not really that fancy. You look around, and you go, well, this place isn't that nice. It's kind of a dump, actually. But before we go into the same room, let's imagine if I say something else, I say, now listen, before we go into this room, I want you to know that this is a jail cell. And you walk into that same room and you look around and you go, "Eh, it's a pretty nice place. It's the same exact room. How could you have a different experience around the same exact set of circumstances? The difference is your expectations. A lot of Christians lose their joy because of misguided expectations, They don't expect to face the kind of trials and difficulties that are inevitable in this life. If you don't expect them, not only are you going to be upset by those troubles, but you're going to be upset that there even are troubles in the first place. Not only are you upset, but you're going to be upset that you're upset. And half the problem of your upsetness is the fact that you have these expectations. Your problem is, "I, I, I expected things to be differently. And, you know, it's not supposed to be like this. But who says? See, Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. And and joy comes not because we don't expect anything bad to happen. It comes as God gives us the sufficient grace that we need to persevere in all things. See, there's this buoyancy there. You know what I mean by the word buoyancy? It's like this, this buoy where you have air pressure inside something that's greater than the pressure around it and it forces it back up. When it comes to joy, this is the word picture I want to give you this morning. Uh, this is a kind of spiritual and psychological resilience that we can have as followers of the Lord Jesus. It's this, this buoyancy. It's the, the ability to bounce back after a setback. It, it, it's, it's like when you push something down in the water, it goes down, but it doesn't stay down. It comes right back up. It's not that you don't ever get pushed down. You do get pushed down. You're all the time getting pushed down. You're always getting wet. The issue is you don't stay down and you come back up. That's, that's buoyancy. Let me give you a scripture verse to kind of give you a handle on the biblical concept of buoyancy from the Apostle Paul. This guy was untouchable. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed that's Christian joy right there, right? That's buoyancy. How do you get that? Hold on to that question. We'll we'll come back to it. In Luke chapter one, here's this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're enduring these difficult circumstances. All of that changes suddenly and miraculously as there's a visit from the archangel Gabriel who shows up, tells Zechariah his wife is going to have a son, a powerful prophetic leader who will pave the way for the Messiah. Now, as you might remember, Zechariah is perplexed by all of this. He can hardly believe the news. And the angel says, okay, listen, you're not gonna be able to speak until the child is born. And then the priest is left kind of writing and signing his way through the next few months and trying to explain to everybody else what's happened. The story goes on to say this. After this... His wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. I wonder why in verse 24 it mentions Elizabeth going into seclusion for the first five months of her pregnancy. Maybe this has something to do with the disgrace mentioned in verse 25. And maybe that's why she stayed in seclusion for these five months, keeping to herself to let her hope blossom into joy. Or maybe it was to ensure that this pregnancy was indeed going to last. Or maybe she was just simply savoring these days of gestation on her own terms. We really don't know. But what we do know is this was a special time for Elizabeth, a long time in the waiting. It's like what it says in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may last for the night but joy comes in the morning. For her now, it's morning. Now, if we were watching a movie, this is where we might see on the screen something like this subtitle, Meanwhile in Galilee. When Elizabeth is six months pregnant, the same angel, Gabriel, makes another earthly appearance, this time to Mary, and he's delivering the most miraculous pregnancy news in all of the world. He says, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you as a virgin. You will give birth to a son. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And Mary receives this news graciously and willingly. And Mary, Mary, Mary as she thought about that, she must have known that unlike Elizabeth, her challenges and her disgrace were just about to begin. The scorn, the shame she would face, and her family, and her fiance as well, would be tremendous when it became obvious that she was pregnant and unmarried. How do you make people believe the baby in your womb is not illegitimate or shameful, but God's son? Imagine being married. She's probably 13, 14, 15, maybe. She's a teenager, she's engaged to this guy. Then she's given a virgin birth. This has never happened before. How are you going to explain that to your mom? Mom, I'm pregnant. Who's the father? God. Would you believe your daughter? How is she going to explain that to her friends? How is she going to explain that to her fiance? This is a stressful situation. This is a scary situation. This is a situation that involves fear, which is another thief of joy. We said earlier the word joy is mentioned eight times in this Christmas story. The word fear is mentioned seven times. Fear is about being worried about my safety and feeling threatened by some danger. It's about my anxiety about the outcome of something. The text tells us that Joseph, her fiancé, actually couldn't believe her news at first. Matthew, uh, the other gospel writer, tells us that Joseph planned to break off their engagement in what would have been like a divorce in their culture over all of this. So, Mary's journey was not an easy one. Maybe that's why Luke tells us this. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Mary must have heard about her relative Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. If anybody will understand me, it, it will be Elizabeth, she must have thought. If so, she was right. This, friends, this right here, this is where the joy in the story erupts like a geyser. Against the backdrop of all this discouragement and grief and shame, joy comes bursting through the surface. Take a look. It says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises in her. What a relief this must have been for Mary. She didn't have to explain herself. She didn't have to worry anymore about being misunderstood. All she had to do was say hello, and Elizabeth knew. And even her developing baby new, John the Baptist, as he leaps within her womb. This, this is just the affirmation and encouragement that Mary needed. And let me make a point that might seem painfully obvious, and it's this. It is okay to be joyful. For some of you, this is like a no-brainer, like no duh, Pastor Dave. But for others of you, this is a subversive kind of statement that might make you even uncomfortable at times if you really think about it. A lot of where you fall on that spectrum probably depends on your personal past, your spiritual history. This is one of the premises of of a book that's called Happiness by Randy Alcorn. I raise this point because it's something some of us need to hear and be reminded of that it's okay to experience joy and want to be happy and uh, enjoy those emotions. They are indeed from God. There is great joy in the Christmas season. It is good to embrace and celebrate that joy. It is certainly hard to find the right balance in 2020. Uh, For those of you who find yourselves driven, though, in this month, uh, driven by obligations and busyness and guilt during Advent, it is okay to stop and say no to a few things, pause and embrace and savor a part of that season that brings you great joy. And to those of you who find Christmas this year to be painful and difficult, to those of you who are hurting and grieving personally, or feeling discouraged by this tumultuous last year, it is okay to experience those hard feelings as well as feeling them alongside of true joy also. They don't contradict one another. God sees us no matter where we are on the emotional spectrum. Our longing for happiness and joy is a natural desire. God placed it inside of you to be a reflection of his own joyful nature. And it also points us toward our great hope of joy in heaven. Elizabeth is full of joy. And and Mary, her joy comes bursting through like a geyser as well as she sings and praises and thanks God. Her beautiful words are preserved here. It's called the Magnificat. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. This is such a beautiful, almost poetic passage of Scripture. It's a celebration, and it's a connection uh, between two miraculous events, but on another level, it's these two expectant moms sharing this deep understanding An affirmation that fosters joy no matter what has happened in the past or what will happen to them in the future. There's so much joy going on between these two ladies and so much we can take away from this text, but I just want to focus in on Mary's first line there on the screen. Where does she find her joy? My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Her joy is found where? In God. Notice the word rejoicing rejoice. There are a lot of uses of the word rejoice in the Bible. It's not a word that we use very often in our culture. Maybe we should. Rejoice is the verb form of expressing joy. It's the action of feeling delight. And if you look more closely at the word, you'll notice it begins with the prefix re. Think back to grammar school. You'll remember that prefix means once more or again or to return to. So to rejoice is to return to joy. It is a a choice and an action we take to return back to our source of joy. And I'd like to add that for us, it is a return to the ultimate source of joy, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to movement three. How can we find joy in the midst of 2020? Friends, I believe this is the only way we can find true delight and lasting happiness and satisfaction. And I believe the process is the same for all of us. Whether we are feeling the happiness and joy of this season or not, whether we are buried in discouragement or everything is going our way, none of us can conjure an unending supply of good feelings all of the time, no matter how optimistic or positive or, you know, how wonderful your disposition normally is in terms of your temperament. Sooner or later, we all have one of those days or one of those weeks or one of those years. That's where the re comes in. That's where we must return regularly, constantly back to the Lord Jesus, our true source of joy, and refuel our tank and restore our strength and renew our spirit. There are three ways to return to joy. The first is to reconnect with your Savior. You know how you have to put your battery on a charger? We need to reconnect our soul on the charger of God's Word. It reminds us where the true joy is found, in God our Savior. It is a work of the Spirit when we recharge our spiritual batteries. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is our strength. So my encouragement to you is to return to Christ as your source of joy, to take time this month to desire Him and meditate upon Him and focus on Him and fix your eyes on Him. That is how you sit on the charger. That's how you get buoyancy. This is how you don't find your joy in circumstances that change. You find your joy in a person that never changes. See, Christian joy is not about changing circumstances. It's about changing the source of my joy. Our truest source of joy and fulfillment always comes from Christ. Christmas is a season of joy because Christ has brought joy into the world and provided the way of ultimate fulfillment and life. The Apostle Peter says it so well. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. An inexpressible and glorious joy sounds like deep stuff. The kind that finds its source even deeper than our pain and sorrow and the problems that can sometimes feel like they're burying us. It's a deep well that we draw upon no matter what we're facing. I'm not suggesting, don't worry, be happy. I'm not suggesting, put on your fake plastic smile. Sometimes this joy is a rushing fountain that bursts 180 feet in the air. Other times it's a slow burble that makes its way up to the surface. Wherever you find yourself today, let me encourage you to find your joy in the Lord, no matter what you're facing. See, Here's what I wanna communicate today. If you don't get anything else, just get this, okay? Joy is not so much of a feeling as it is a point of view. It is a perspective. It's a way of looking at things. That's helpful to me because it sets me free from the need to feel a certain way. Nowadays I think we make a little too much of our emotions and everybody's like, well, I don't feel happy. Well, I don't know if you're supposed to feel happy all the time. Like, where's that in the Bible? That's not the same as joy. We don't need to be so controlled by our feelings. See, joy is not the absence of sadness, and it's not even the presence of happy feelings. Let me just show you one Bible verse that kind of blows up our culture's idea of happiness in one verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He set joy before him. He set it out in front of him in order to endure the cross. I don't think he found any joy in being tortured by crucifixion. That's crazy. He set joy in front of him as the desired outcome of his work on the cross. There's no joy in the feeling of hanging on a cross. Just because Jesus was the son of God, it doesn't mean he didn't feel pain. He was fully human, right? It was painful and he knew it would be painful. He wasn't surprised by the pain. He wasn't surprised by the suffering. He wasn't surprised by their mocking. He wasn't surprised by the blood. But yet, he set joy out in front of him as a focus so that the pain then became purposeful. It's like the smile on my wife's face after she had each of our three children. She set the joy out in front of her to endure the pain. See, this is the problem with the simplistic, like, choose-happy kind of person. That's not what the Scripture teaches. It's a process. James chapter 1 has helpful words about this, too. He, he He encourages us this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see that phrase, consider it? That was actually a financial accounting term. It's like a financial statement where there's income on one side and expenses on the other side. James says, I want you to do some spiritual accounting with your circumstances. Okay, if you could just take some of the things that you thought were expenses and transfer them over to the income side and flip them, then you'll discover that you actually have a lot more joy that you weren't aware of. But you're not going to get it by pretending to be happy. (laughs) No, you're going to get it by recognizing that our God God never wastes anything that comes our way. And that leads us to step two. We need to reallocate our challenges as part of God's plan. Now, I have to admit, sometimes that's the last thing I want to hear when I'm hurting. Joy can feel so far away when we're grieving or depressed or afraid as our pain and disappointment and problems loom. But let me encourage you that James isn't necessarily saying be happy about your trials or problems. He's saying you can find joy in them when you see a bigger picture than them. The bigger picture is that God is working all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In those difficult times, there's much encouragement in this word rejoice. We find it all over the Bible. It's all over the Psalms. Here's one example from Psalm 13 where the writer begins with a painful cry. How long, Lord, will you forget me? Forever, he says. But it ends with this reminder and declaration. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. This is just one of many similar examples. The the Psalms are honest and raw, as the writers pour out their hearts like water before the Lord in these prayer-like poems and psalms, then we see them transition through the process of remembering and stirring themselves to rejoice and find strength in and from God. This is where and how we can find authentic joy, brothers and sisters. This is how we can celebrate this season, even as we remember uh, these difficulties that we're facing. We turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and invite him to be with us and show us his joy. Last point. We realign our hearts with the infinite worth of Christ. There's a convicting book I read during the pandemic called The Coronavirus and Christ by John Piper, and he talks about how often in the pandemic we keep losing our joy because we're always talking about the odds. And he says this, Playing the odds is a fragile place to put your hope. Odds, like 3% versus 10%, youth versus old age, compromised health versus no history of disease, rural versus urban, self-isolated versus home meeting with friends. Playing the odds provides little hope. It is not a firm place to stand. There is a better way. There is a better place to stand. If we're ever going to find true joy, we need a rock We need a rock of certainty, not the sand of probabilities. You know the word corona actually means crown? Its name is derived from the crown-like structures on the outside of the virus. And I thought perhaps if anything good will ever come out of this pandemic in this year, it is that this year has exposed what wears the crown on our hearts. And then when we see that and it's exposed, now we have the opportunity to realign our hearts with the infinite worth of Christ instead. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he says, brothers and sisters, in 2 Corinthians 1, we are working with you for your joy. We are coming alongside of you for your joy. I will be beaten for your joy. I will be put in jail for your joy. I will experience lashes for your joy, if I could just bring about joy in your heart, in Jesus, above all things. One more time with that verse from Hebrews chapter 12. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was no suffering as bad as the Savior's suffering on the cross. He suffered something you and I will never understand. In fact, that's why he suffered it, so that you would not have to understand what it feels like to bear the judgment of God. How did he do that? He set the joy in front of him. What joy did Jesus get out of his work on the cross? What did Jesus get out of that incredible, infinite experience of agony and torment that he went through? A sense of accomplishment? Jesus didn't need that. What did he get? Admiration from his father? Jesus already had that. What didn't he have? Brothers and sisters, the joy that was set before him was you. I'm not talking about self-esteem dressed up as Christianity. I'm talking about you in all of your sin. He found great joy in saving you. And when you discovered that your Lord found his joy in you, you begin to find your joy in him. Let me quote Jonathan Edwards about this. Christ has his delight most truly and properly in obtaining your salvation, not merely as a means conducive to his joy and delight, but as what he actually rejoices and is satisfied in, most directly and properly. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with singing, and he will quiet you with his love. Friends, if Jesus locates his joy in you, you must locate your joy in him. As the worship team comes, let me encourage you this week and this Christmas to rediscover what it means to embrace the truest source of lasting joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us seek our happiness not in the seasonal trappings and traditions all around us, but rather in returning to the true source of everlasting joy. Let us choose the process of returning to our Lord this year, the one who brought us good news of great joy joy. When you know that, it will come up out of your soul like a geyser. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for this news of joy that you have given us at Christmas, that a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. He will save his people from their sins. We rejoice as we look back upon your great work. We rejoice as we consider that you are coming to return again for us, your people. Lord, thank you for this deep well of joy that exists in the Christian faith. We thank you, God, that you are our truest source of joy. And like Mary, we proclaim together this morning, we rejoice in God, our Savior. I pray, God, that you'd give us a buoyancy. I pray, God, that you would give us a a spiritual and emotional and psychological resilience because of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. God, may we come to know this source of joy and also spread that joy to others even this week. For Christ's sake and for his reputation, we pray. Amen.